Welcome to Haber Bros, a podcast for historic cross-centered Christians. We, see, we seek to provide ancient answers to a culture that's forgotten the questions. Thank you for listening this week. If you like what you're hearing or enjoy the show, please share it with a friend. This is the biggest way that podcasts grow. Say positive things about us on Twitter and Facebook. If you haven't yet given us a five-star review, pause this recording. And stop what you're doing and give us a five-star rating and review. You know, Christopher, um, my sons uh, continue to exhort me to say uh, more demanding things of the listener. Um, evidently, in the, um, the YouTube channels that they follow, um, the YouTubers are, are, are really more bossy about... Um, yeah, they're like, like, subscribe, because those that's huge on YouTube. Right, like, that's subscribe. how the YouTube algorithms work. Uh, also, comment. Yeah, those those things are huge. Uh, those are things that I never do on YouTube videos, even yeah. if I like them. Uh, but maybe I should uh, start. Yeah, shout out and free merch to the first people. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Follow what us on... Kirk, what would, our, what would our merch look like? Uh... Would it be used uh, Charles Villiers Stansford? <laughs> old victorian uh evening canticle scores <laughs> coffee stained evening canticle scores or uh or i was i was thinking like a, like a mug with a crucifix on it christ-centered oh, okay. cross focus sure um follow us on twitter at at clergy lay and join our facebook discussion group i'm kirk haberman a church musician and this is my brother chris a priest hey chris how are you doing well kirk I am getting my second vaccination tomorrow, or today. I'm sorry, tomorrow. Today, I'm still waking up. We we are doing a, a morning version, so this is totally contrary to our rhythm. Usually, we, we record in the afternoon, so we'll see how that affects it. Now that we're both drinking the... our morning coffee, um, that's right. I have not yet run water through my hair, so I've got like a, like a like very evident morning hair. Yeah. Well, and now that this is in the listener's head, this is just going to stick there. They're going to be like, ooh, they're speaking very fast. They must be very caffeinated or whatever the differences may be. But so, so we're recording in the morning. Uh, I'm going to go straight from here to get my second vaccination, which, Kirk, it's very exciting. It sounds like uh, I've been hearing across the country dates of when vaccinations are going to open up to right. everybody. You when know, supply than, will for the first time exceed demand. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, oh, which yeah. Is, which is super exciting. I mean, I hope demand continues to raise. Please, everyone, um, get your vaccination. They're, they're safe. It, this is how we're going to get through this and get back to whatever normal will look like. But uh, what's strange is, is we're recording this on Good Friday. Yeah. And, and yet we're discussing Easter because really what we focus on is the coming Sunday. And so th there's, there's a bit of strangeness to have such a solemn day and be talking resurrection because we talked about like, we don't, it's not like we pretend like the resurrection 
didn't happen, but like we just let we we sit in the solemnity and the and the sorrow of of today, but also like real life goes on, and we don't want to draw big distinctions between what happens in real life and what happens inside the walls of the church, because we believe that those are artificial barriers that the church breaks into the world. Uh, however, you know, my children are home from school. They, they don't have school today. And, and so yep, that's going to be, uh, my wife is at work. And, and so that's going to kind of be on, on my mind. And, and so I'm taking them to sky zone. Yes. Um, so on, on the day that our Lord sacrificed himself for the, for the sin of the world, I would be watching my kids jackalize and jump around. <laughs> You're taking your kids to Sky Zone. My children are fasting all day. <laughs> yes, you guys are much I'm more observant than we are. Yes, <laughs> I saw your kids walk in before the recording, and they were they were already hungry. And they're <laughs> uh, at the Ash Wednesday. We yep. read from from the Sermon on the Mount on how you you don't like you don't celebrate your your fasting like the, like the pagans do, um, but you you kind of cover up your face. You know, you make it look like you're you're not fasting, and so they're like rubbing makeup on their face and like kind of filling right. in. Yeah, yeah. They're like, we're really okay. Breakfast was great. Wink, wink, wink. Yes. <laughs> I fed my children for the record. <laughs> Did you use yeast in feeding them? Uh, no. Uh, I it was muffins that I had made, uh, banana chocolate chip muffins, and uh, Martha Stewart's recipe, which calls for a lot of butter but no yeast. Mm. So butter but no yeast. Kirk, what uh, what are your Easter? Because because Kirk, you're you're a big baker. I I, yeah, I yeah. love cooking. I love oh, cooking. Yeah. I love grilling. I don't bake. So is, are, is there anything Easter that you bake? My mother-in-law has requested a, a specific particular cheesecake. Mm. And it's because last time she was here, like two weeks ago, um, I, uh, Bryden, my, my oldest son, my seventh grade son, is, uh, has suddenly discovered that cheesecakes are amazing. So, mm. hey, welcome to the club. Better late than mm. never, right? Okay, I've, a cheesecake is my favorite cake. Um, and uh, so he's like, We've, we've made three different kinds of cheesecakes. Uh, we made, made a key lime cheesecake. This would have been a couple Ooh. months ago. It was, it was spectacular. We made a peanut butter cheesecake. That was really good too. I think I, I, think I shared that on, uh, on, on Facebook. Um, it had like crumbled uh, Reese's cups on top of it. They were like drizzled uh, artistically with chocolate. It, it was really quite Love good. the drizzle. Oh, yes. And, um, and then we made a... a my, my son's favorite fruit is strawberry. And he discovered that like, you can go two different ways with cheesecakes. You can, you can go kind of, kind of chocolate or peanut butter, or you can, you can experiment with fruit. Um, and, uh, and he's like, dad, let's make a strawberry cheesecake. So we looked at kind of different recipes. Which one do you want to try? And uh, the one that we tried is so rich. It involves, it involves 32 ounces of cream cheese, but it's a lot of strawberry. And you like puree the strawberry and you, you strain it and then you blend it in. So it's, it tastes very strawberry and actually has a lot of strawberry. You can legitimately say it has strawberry in it. And my mother-in-law who really is, she is she's a good cook. Um, she was, I, it made me feel really good. She was transported <laughs> into the heavenlies as she ate it. It was fun watching her face. And she's like, this, I want you to bring this to Easter mm. dinner. And mm. I'm like, done. So that's, that's what we'll be doing tomorrow. Um, 
in the past sure. yeah go ahead no go ahead Oh, I was just going to say in the past, um, we were in a bit of an Easter baking rut. Uh, my wife grew up making something called resurrection bread, where um, it's kind of you, you, these bread rolls and you, you, you bite into them and they're empty. <laughs> like the, uh, the way empty you make tomb. Them, empty tomb. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kirk, this is all very interesting because it, it, it occurs to me, this is episode 52. Oh. <gasps> And we skipped, so it's a we oh. skipped two weeks. So was our first episode Easter? Mm -mm. Is, that, is that no? No, we began in Lent last Lent. We began in Lent. Okay. Yeah. Uh, I, I yeah, because it's lunar, not calendar. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, because I remember talking last year about um, fasting and feasting, and how uh, on on Easter. <laughs> That that you don't really restrict uh, in, indulgence, like it's it's a day of feasting, and, right. and there's some, yeah, yeah. some 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 sense of learning that you know, like that um, kids kind of learn that like when you eat. So here, here's here's the the lesson in our house is that Jordan, <laughs> Jordan doesn't like jelly beans because she just like ate a million, and <laughs> we're like, yeah, go go for it. It's it's Easter. Like we don't, you know, you don't fast when the master's here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. and uh she just remembers her kind of upset stomach and and uh, doesn't <laughs> uh, well i got that from the de quattros who i, I remember that, that with with uh their daughter and i think there was a similar no it wasn't a similar effect they were worried there would be a similar effect they wanted to they wanted to show um uh, their daughter what grace was like and grace is like this like an easter banquet Mm. And um, today, we always tell you, no, put that down when you reach for the second or third piece of chocolate. Today, have what you want. And they're like, and about an hour later, we were deeply <laughs> regretting and like worried, like, can a four-year-old get diabetes? Like, <laughs> But I, I believe yeah, I mean, they stuck to their guns. But I guess what they said, it was just an un undescribable unseemly mountain of wrappers and like chocolate <laughs> but and their kids they bounce back and i should say feasting is not gluttony right, uh, that's right that's those right. are two separate things uh, <laughs> and because we live in a fallen world we live in a sinful world that's right and uh we kind of it's hard for us to find that that difference and um in the life to come um there will be feasting but there will not be gluttony which is kind of a, an interesting thing to fathom right mm -hmm. amen Amen. Christopher, uh, this is a, uh, we'll be talking about this later. This is a, a weird um, conversation that you and I are having and about to have. Um, we're we're going to talk in just a moment about the resurrection, and yet we're in the middle of Holy Week. Um, it's Good Friday. So I just absolutely have no uh, clever or interesting segue. Um, should we talk about the Easter gospel? Let's do it. This 
week's resurrection gospel text comes from the book of Mark, chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. When the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of James and Salome, brought spices, bought spices so that they might go and anoint him. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. And they were saying to one another, who will roll away the stone for us from the entrance of the tomb? And looking up, they saw that the stone had been rolled back. It was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who is crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Kirk, are you ready to go deep? on Bible manuscripts. Okay, you had warned me, um, not, not, <laughs> not about the, the manuscript issue, but you, you had warned me you had much to say. I'm, I'm very excited to hear what you have to say. And actually, I didn't know you were gonna talk about the manuscript thing, but I was gonna ask you about the manuscript mm. thing. So go ahead, man. Some of our listeners may not know why this is where I'm starting today, <laughs> but I'd imagine, or some of our listeners may, but some of our lay people, I, I'd imagine they don't. Kirk, we've said this before, we believe that the Bible is reliable. Amen. Second Timothy 3.16 tells us, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And we have these 39 articles. And article 6 is on holy scriptures. It says, Holy scripture containeth all things necessary to salvation, so that whatsoever is not read therein, nor may be proved thereby, so if it's not in Scripture or it can't be proved by Scripture, is not to be required of any man that it should be believed as an article of the faith or be thought requisite or necessary to salvation. Uh, some of the earliest manuscripts that we have of Scripture, so the original, what they, we call them is autographs, like the, the original letters of Paul, those are lost to the history. But in a pre-printing press era, what did they do with these documents? They copied and copied and copied and copied by hand. And some of the earliest manuscripts, uh, um, in fact, if you look at your Bible, if you open your Bible right now to Mark 16, you will see something after verse 8 that says, in all likelihood, here's what my ESV says. Some of the earliest manuscripts do not include 16, 9 through 20, as in... The book ends with verse eight. So we have early manuscripts, Kirk. We have entire books of the Bible, entire books, not fragments, but books that go back to the year 200. And we have fragments of books. Uh, and these aren't just like a letter here. I'm saying like, or like a word. We have like significant chunks of books that, that are, uh, go back to the, uh, that are even older than the year 200. It's pretty amazing. I mean, for something to be kept around. Uh, we have full manuscripts of, of the New Testament going back to the fourth century. And the reason we know that the Bible is reliable is because it was so widely copied and disseminated. 
So from the earliest years, they copied and copied and copied. Scribes all over the known world were making copy after copy and sending them. So we have we have uh, manuscripts in Africa. We have manuscripts in Asia. We have manuscripts in Europe. We have manuscripts in Australia. No, we don't. Um, <laughs> but known world. Uh, but what's amazing is that the fragments that we find in Africa match those found in Asia, and they match those found in Europe. But here's the thing. Everyone wants to take Christianity down a peg. And so there's a lot of money to be made if you're a pseudo-scholar and you challenge the authority of Scripture and the reliability of Scripture. So I would the most famous example I could think of, the most famous contemporary example, is a guy named Bart Ehrman. And I, that guy can sit – I'm sure he's on TV right now debunking the cross and the resurrection. Oh, Holy Week is his glory. Yep. Yeah, yeah. So uh, there, there, any unbiased observer would say this guy deceives people with his data. Like he's just fundamentally dishonest. For instance, his argument that scripture is unreliable uses quantitative data to make his case. So he points out that yeah. there are 400,000 errors present in existing manuscripts. That there are 400,000 disagreements between these things. And he's like, well, how would we know what scripture means if, if there are 400,000? I mean, there's only 130,000 words in the New Testament. So the, the, the number of errors exceeds the words in the New Testament by three times. Well, here's the thing. Using that quantitative data, he actually undermines his own point. 400 errors mean that there are a lot of manuscripts to count up that many disagreements throughout the, the manuscripts in, in the known world. Um, the fact is that we have these geographically diverse manuscripts saying the same thing. That actually right. testifies to the reliability of the document. The misspelling of a word here or there is easily correctable when you have thousands of manuscripts to compare it to in, that are geographically diverse. I mean, it's this is pointing to the actual reliability of these scribes. Um, and again, Kirk, I said, I'm going to go deep. Okay. So as a seminary student, I had to look up some of these instances, you know, and I hope that every pastor um, doesn't have to take the reliability of scripture just by faith. The fact that someone else, like we had to look at, at the differences in the manuscripts and what that actually means in getting the text to us. So there are times when a scribe would, would look at a word and he would say to himself, that can't be right. This, this manuscript that I'm working off of, must, must they must have made a mistake, so I'm going to make a change. Things like that happened. Uh, and, and so th they made a, an edit, essentially. Sometimes he was right. Sometimes he was wrong. But these are small instances. We're talking about a word here or there. That doesn't change the meaning of all of Scripture. It may change the meaning of a sentence, but not the whole of Scripture. And so you can actually look up um, with the right resources the decisions that the scholars made that gave us the authoritative text of Scripture. Uh, and see like why they made that decision that they compared it to the whole of scripture and and they're like well um, there's an older manuscript that 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 just says this and and it seems like this change came later by by either error or choice of of a scribe. Kirk, you were going to answer or ask a question. Oh, I, I was I was wondering if you were going to get to contrasting it with um, how many um, 
how many errors per hundred words um, we have in the plays of Sophocles mm. or, or uh, Euripides or uh, the works of Homer or, um, or, or, or manuscripts of Plato. Um, I mean, the, our Aristotle has taken a long and winding road to us yeah. through like 700 years in Arab culture. Um, uh, yeah, so. Um, yeah, and, and we could do a whole that, apologetics. That comparison and contrast, um, yeah. right? The, the Gospels are, are much more reliably what the original authors written, wrote than yeah. anything from Greek antiquity, correct? Oh, yeah, yeah. And, <laughs> and just the, the, the number of manuscripts we have, like we have many fewer. So, I mean, we that is a, a correct whole... usage of many fewer, by the way. We we could do a whole theology segment on apologetics and like yeah. why we believe in like I mean people uh, today will will make really silly statements like like if there even was a Jesus right as if he was like were made up and it's and um but we read Plato's Republic and we right. like no, no one well, ever says did did Plato did Socrates actually say that no like, I'm talking about the exact. Even just the the existence, like right, right. we have, we have just wide testimony of the man of Jesus and like the of his resurrection, or at least like we have, uh, you know, Josephus who was not a Christian talking right. about riots um, caused by Crestus, yeah, yeah, and where you know Bart Ehrman would say, you know, uh, the the whole idea of Christ's resurrection came later, the whole idea of Christ's divinity came later. No, he's wrong. He's wrong you know we can't trust anything in history like we have much more we have many we have much less evidence of the person of julius caesar than we do of of uh jesus christ well and the trends are working against bart airman in terms of his general thesis that um these documents are late um every right. decade the dates move up right so paul's letter yeah, to the yeah. corinthians now um was written what in the 50s yeah um and we know that we just know that right um, there, there, there used to be kind of Jesus seminar dates around the book of John that would put it in the sec in the second century. And now we know that that's not true, that it was certainly yeah, a first yeah. century document. So. I, I, like I said, I don't want to get caught in the weeds. This is all right. like an introduction to what I want to say. Yes. You are, you oh, yeah. are talented at lengthy preambles, sir. The right, point is you can look up why the powers that be made the decisions they made and see that in the biggest picture, that this letter or that letter, they don't add up to a totally different Bible or a totally different um, sense of what, what uh, Jesus was and what the movement was. So the fancy word for what I just described of this, this letter, th that letter, this word, that word, that's called lower criticism or textual criticism. It's a valid thing that has gotten us our modern Bible. So when we talk about critical scholarship, there's like there's validity to lower criticism. What we reject on this podcast, Kirk, is higher criticism or historical criticism. I don't want to paint with too broad of a brush, but higher criticism or historical criticism, it rejects large swaths of scripture. These are the people that think that the Jesus we see in the Bible is different from the real Jesus of history. So this is Jesus seminar. This is uh, Jesus of history, Christ of faith, drawing a distinction. No, we believe that the Bible, the biblical accounts are true. And um, for instance, the reason that Mark writes that the women were the ones that went to the grave even though women were not um, a reliable witnesses in court, they were not, it was just a fact. The reason he said that the women went is because that's how it happened. The reason that we see the disciples portrayed in such a, a 
negative light. And here it, it doesn't even count Peter. We don't know what this means, but it may not even count Peter as one of the disciples. It says that the disciples and Peter, it's possible that Mark is saying <laughs> at this point with Peter's denial that like, go tell the disciples. Oh, and also Peter make, make sure you get to him. Uh, so the one place though, where Orthodox Christians agree in rejecting a bigger swath of scripture is at the end of the book of Mark. So uh, uh, a would be, be considered a very orthodox or conservative, um, not in the contemporary conservative sense or political sense, but like reliability of scripture, even the ESV Bible says like the original manuscripts do not include this ending of Mark from nine through 20. Origen, Tertullian, Cyprian make no reference to verses nine through 20. These are very early church fathers. Mm, and, interesting. And, and Eusebius and Jerome say that all the manuscripts available to them end at verse 8. So we don't get anything. Here's the thing is at verses 9 through 20, we don't get anything all that crucial there. By So by tossing out, we don't miss all that much unless you're a snake handler. Right. <laughs> so verses 17 and 18 go like this. And these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. They will speak in new languages. Okay, I can live with that, right? They will pick up serpents with their hands, and if they drink deadly poison, it will not hurt them. There's also something, Kirk, called the shorter ending. So your Bible probably has the longer ending, but there's something called the shorter ending of Mark, and it goes like this. So this would be verse 9. And they, or I don't think it's given a verse. It's just this is a shorter ending. And they reported all the instructions briefly to Peter's companions. Afterwards, Jesus himself threw them sent forth from east to west the sacred and imperishable proclamation of eternal salvation. And that sums it up, right? But it seems tacked on. It's like yeah. someone's like, oh, that seems kind of incomplete. So let's just like sum up uh, Matthew and, and Luke. There's a great commission. Um, Jesus came to them. Because otherwise, if you're okay ending it at verse 8, the last, the last phrase is, <laughs> for they were afraid. Yes. Yeah. Where's the ending? <laughs> So, so here's, here's the thing. Where's the ending? Some think that it's lost forever. That Mark wrote it, but it's lost to the sands of time. That, that like it, it fell off and it didn't make it to the scribes, whatever. At least one scholar, Kirk, has the melodramatic uh, uh, suggestion that perhaps he dropped dead as he was like working on the... <laughs> um, but what's just as likely and, and what, what I think um, is most likely is that this is how he intended to end his book, to end his gospel on a cliffhanger. Well, I remember hearing John Dominic Crossan, and he was a, a crucial member of the Jesus Seminar, um, so he does not believe in the resurrection, saying that until the idea of the resurrection began to grow in communities later in the second century, um, this captured quite rightly the, um, the, the state of mind of the early church. They were afraid of the Jews and of the Romans, and so that was that. I, and the the, the the listener can't can't see, but you are derisively shaking your head. <laughs> that's that's just not in this text, Kirk. <laughs> right. That's not in this text. <laughs> I mean, Kirk, this is a fascinating gospel, beginning to end. We've yeah. talked about how action oriented he is, how he uses the word immediately, how he skips things like the birth narrative, and he jumps like you know from here to there. Um, right. And then he ends his book with women arriving at an empty tomb. Well, it actually, it's not empty, but Jesus isn't there. Right. A young man is, and this young man is certainly an angel. He tells them that Jesus is raised. He says, go to Galilee to see him, just as he told you. <laughs> uh, I mean, so, like, 
this, what this else can not, you say? What else is he supposed to say to make it clear? Yeah. I mean, this this is not like, well, where is the body? It's like, no. Hey, remember when he told you how he would be, he would suffer and die and be raised? That happened. Now go. Now here's the last verse of the book. Kirk, uh, you read the last phrase, but here's yes. the last verse. And they went out and fled from the tomb for trembling and astonishment had seized them. And they said nothing to anyone for they were afraid. What a cliffhanger. That's it. Now, if I could get a little more technical, I promise this will be fast that we're not going to get <laughs> caught in the weeds here. The last word um, in the Greek is, is four. So in the Greek text, the last word is, is four. So in English, word order matters a great deal. But in Greek, it doesn't matter quite as much. And, and, and this is the same way in, in, in many languages, in, in inflected languages. So in English, it's always subject, verb, object, right? But like Japanese, for instance, commonly goes subject, object, verb. But word order does in Greek. It so like I, eyeball kick. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but word order does matter a little bit. Um, and the word for usually doesn't come at the end. But with, so with it coming at the end of the sentence, um, one scholar constructs the sentence this way. His, this is how he translates. He says, they were afraid was why. They said nothing to no one. They were afraid was why. Right. Mic that drop. Makes sense. Mic drop. So, so what, so, I mean, so for the, uh, it, you know, it could also be why, you know. So why does he end it this way? So one scholar, I'm, I'm going to read this quote. I love it. Mark does not end leaving his readers, whether in the first century or the 21st, feeling that the story is wrapped up with nothing left to do but rejoice in its outcome. Rather, the reader can respond in a multitude of ways. If the story is to continue, its continuation lies in part in the hands of its readers. It's mm. sort of like handing the baton to us. Instead of right. a great commission, it's like, go to Galilee and see him. You know, uh, now we today, we can't see him the way that Thomas did. And so it's, it's interesting, like the way that John continues his story and just like, contrast to what you talked about john dominic crossan of, of of this sense of just fear yeah they were afraid and then jesus appeared and like assuaged their fears right uh this one scholar continues he says a more confident story with better closure would comport less well with faith that in its nature lacks confidence and closure or it would not be faith now i do like the the, the sense of that that like faith is concrete that we're not just taking a leap of faith, jumping off a bridge and hoping that God will save us. Like, that's not what we do. And, and, and we have a, a direct illustration of how we shouldn't do this. Um, the, the devil tempts uh, Jesus, throw yourself off, you know, and, and God will save you. You will not let your um, foot something about stones. Dash your uh, foot against a stone. Yeah. Dash your foot against a stone. It is early morning, Kirk. <laughs> um, but, but, the, but the sense of like, <laughs> there's some fun background noise uh the kids are playing they're having a good time yes, uh, yes. Th there is some sense that like th it is given to us this sense of grasping the faith that the tomb is empty and jesus is raised and we grasp that with faith 
Um, we, we have the assurance of, of the sacraments and the testimony of the eyewitnesses, but in a sense, like the baton is being handed to us. And for that reason, Kirk, I love this ending. I am glad that not all four gospels have this ending, but I kind of like it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I feel like Mark is nobody's favorite gospel. <laughs> um, probably it's most people like to say John because it's, it's different. It's unique. Um, or, or Luke, um, Luke, uh, has, has, um, several like crucial pericopes that neither Matthew nor Mark have. Um, Mark has that awesome Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> uh, I'm but, sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Matthew has the awesome Sermon yes. on the Mount, five, no, five I, through seven. It's yeah, great. Yeah, I remember last year um, walking through Matthew with you, Christopher, was very formative, and Matthew now holds a, a special place in my heart. Uh, but, but Mark's account here is so unique. It's so different, and, um, and it's just great. I, I, like, I like when we, uh, when we get it every third year. It's stark. It's to the point. It's Spartan. Um, uh, we get... We get um, uh, stones rolling away and and we get uh, in in other in other texts or in John we get um, Mary mistaking Jesus for the gardener but here we get this this stark to the point um, passage so so I like it and thank you for thank you for that that lengthy and informative uh, <laughs> voyage into the depths of, of criticism because uh, I was gonna just ask you about the tact on ending a mark like it's always worth it's always worth uh, talking about. And the snake handling thing, Christopher, so I live here in southwestern Pennsylvania. You know, we travel an hour south and I'm in West Virginia, which is uh, ground zero for um, the the remnant of snake handlers. Like it's still it's still out there. So and, and what and what is that, Kirk? Is, is that just like <laughs> evidence like we, we we're showing that we are? It's, um, I think it's fruit, fruit of yeah. salvation. Yeah, it's evidence. Yeah, yeah. And I remember 10 years ago, there's sort of big news. Um, the, the oldest and most notorious snake handler finally died. Um, and I, I don't remember if he died from snake of venom? the snake. Please, or... <laughs> please say, please tell me. I, I, for, I forget, I forget, but yeah. And so the dog has been coming and going and my four-year-old daughter isn't sure if she wants the dog to be in with me or not. <laughs> Hang on one moment. All right, crisis averted, and we're we're back. Yes. No. Here's the issue. Uh, right now, in the hallway outside me, the the, the downstairs, um, they're priming, and mm. uh, they're worried about our dog Iris getting mm. into the primer. So, I'm sure it's fine. Yes, I'm sure it's fine. Christopher, any other um, any any other thoughts on on the gospel here? Uh, I know this is you, strange. You don't have, both. You don't have thoughts. I just I just uh, spent a long time. Like, you don't have anything you want to say. No, I mean, no, that was, that was, that was great. That was okay, great. Well, I, I have thoughts. Um, so I mentioned like, think away, uh, everything here is recorded this way because this is how it happened. And so, so this, I guess is my apologetic seg segment. Uh, uh, so, so, you know, skeptics would, would say, um, you know, the resurrection was an invention, this, that, the other, um, but we have evidence that this, that, that the accounts that we have are reliable early in the morning early on the first day of the week, okay, early on Sunday, they go out. Why do they have to go out first thing on Sunday to anoint the body? It's because on Friday they were in a hurry to get the body into the tomb before sundown because the Sabbath starts at sundown. And it, it would be Jewish practice to uh, anoint the body. And, and so uh, I think this probably would have happened early on, um, 
but uh, they also look and they say, well, they, they're on their way and they say to each other, they realize who's going to roll away the tomb. So they're dutifully doing this. Notice mm-hmm. it's not the men who do it. Um, the men are probably confused and, and, and in disarray and, and maybe even dispersed. And um, yet it's the women who are the faithful ones. It's the women who are the faithful ones at the cross. And they had watched him be crucified. They had watched him be buried. That's how they knew there was a giant stone there, Kirk. And so, so they're on their way out. And uh, it's, it's a very, uh, e- e- but even the women, these eyewitnesses, they run away in fear. So there, here's the thing. If you were to construct, if you were one of these early apostles and you were writing this and making it up out of whole cloth, wouldn't you make yourself super smart and super brave and super wise? Would you rebuke Jesus when he tells you that he has to be crucified and would have to raise, be raised like Peter did? Would you deny him and abandon him? Would you look like Thomas and say, unless I actually put my hands on his scars and touch his side, I will not believe? No, we have these accounts because this is how it happened. Uh, and um, I, th- I think that the, the other thing I want to say is that um, we have testimony about Sunday being the day of worship for the church early on, right away. Why? Because the resurrection has changed everything, right? That uh, the whole like pattern, like the whole cosmos had been designed around creation of, of on the seventh right. day, he rested and thus we rest. But Christ in what he did in the resurrection has, has remade cosmos, uh, the cosmos. And like, we live in this like eternal Sabbath in this eternal uh, first day. And um, there's a lot we could say about that. And maybe we should just use this cosmos changing event of the resurrection, like changing the entire day of worship uh, to segue, unless you have something else to say. Uh, no, that's great. That's great. This is actually something that um, that I've I've begun to notice um, is a category error that, that Christians commit, or they kind of smash the two together in their head, or they're mixed together inextricably. Um, and uh, we want to talk about the difference between um, the events of Holy Week and Easter, or um, the difference between the cross and the tomb, or the crucifixion and the resurrection. 
Um, because they both represent victories, not represent, that's a weak word. They both are, are. victories. <laughs> yeah, are. They both are victories, but they're victories over different things. And those victories over different things accrue to us different benefits, right? So they're both wonderful things. And this is why the cross is a lovely thing to us. And this is why the empty tomb and the risen Christ is a lovely thing to us. Uh, but, but there are different events in the course of Christ's passion and resurrection in which he defeats two different things. And so we wanted to talk about that, um, uh, bo both for just kind of our edification and your edification, and also to maybe eliminate some confusion. And in popular evangelical piety, I think that confusion um, causes like strange, like, for example, a strange antipathy to crucifixes and things like that. So mm. we can we can talk about all of that. But but first, um, and, and this is appropriate, Christopher, today, as you and I were thinking about what we wanted to talk about, because we we very oddly, as you and I are speaking right now, have one foot in two different worlds, right? Um, my, my mental and devotional space right now, my, my, my prayers are very much in the triduum. That's the, the three days, uh, Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, Holy Saturday. This is kind of where I am. I love these days. Um, I dive into them. Um, obviously, I'm a church employee. So, <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm very much at church and practicing music and, and rehearsing and rehearsing choirs and stuff like that. Um, but, but I, but I, I'm not saying this because, uh, because I'm holy, uh, but, but I would go if I wasn't anyway. So this is my mental space. This is where I am mentally and devotionally right now. And yet you and I are talking right about Mark's resurrection account. And, uh, so this is, this is kind of where you and I, where our hearts and our minds are, are at right now is, is our faces pressed up against both the cross and the empty tomb. And so, this is actually really uh, a really good thing to talk about. Um, we should start with start with the benefits of the cross, Christopher. And as you and I were exchanging thoughts, to me there is no more succinct, truer, powerful explanation of the benefits of the cross for the penitent believer than Thomas Cranmer's words at the beginning of the Eucharistic prayer. Um, and I, I, I've, I've searched for it in the past and I've, for whatever reason, I haven't been able to find it. And it's probably because his publishers do a good job making sure stuff's not free and available on the internet. But Rowan Williams, I heard him preach a sermon um, on, uh, it's more of a meditation. He did a Holy Week meditation on these words right here. And um, I, it had never occurred to me to think of it this way, but these words represent um, the most succinct, powerful statement of the cross for the believer. And it's this, it's this. Um, Thomas Cranmer says that uh, the cross is the full, perfect and sufficient sacrifice, satisfaction and oblation for our sins. Now we, Christopher, during Holy Week, the epistle readings, Monday, Tuesday and Wednesday have been from Hebrews. And Hebrews quite powerfully talks about um, links Jesus uh, from the from the the types and shadows in the Aaronic priesthood, right? Uh, the priest as the mediator for Israelites, right? Um, Moses sprinkles um, blood on the people as a sign of the covenant, right? Purifying blood. Um, we we read I think it was the, the reading on Wednesday from 
say Hebrews 9 or Hebrews 11. Um, and, and yet Jesus is the, the perfect application of perfect, finally purifying blood uh, on the people. Of, of, uh, and we have this, this, this Greek word, which uh, I rarely say the Greek word because it's, that's not important, but um, he's a once for all sacrifice like this is not so um and, and this is what hebrews gets at is is um this was an annual thing um this sacrifice and in hebrews it points out can the blood of, of of goats take away sin no like only jesus can and once for all his sacrifice once for all yes yes that's that <laughs> that's right yeah so um kramer's words full perfect and sufficient. I mean, all, all, it isn't, doesn't it have one somewhere in there? No? Yes. Once yes. offered. Once, once offered. Once offered. Yeah. Once offered. A full, perfect, and sufficient. So so Hebrews 9 um, says, uh, Hebrews 9, 13. Well, let's go back to 12, 9, 12. Uh, 9, 11. <laughs> but when Christ appeared as a high priest of good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all, right? So that's the once, the full, the perfect, into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption, right? So this is, this is that full, perfect, and sufficient aspect of it. Um, the author of the Hebrews points out elsewhere that, that sacrifices needed to be continually offered up in the temple <laughs> for, for they yeah, were never yeah. sufficient. They were never sufficient, right? So the benefits of the cross um, are for us eternal. They're once offered. Um, and in that way, they're, they're the final, the completion of, of um, the whole cycle of, of temple mediation. Um, that, that always had to be repeated ad infinitum. Um, and Christopher, uh, uh, that, that those three words, full, perfect, and sufficient. Um, I, I've, I've had Hebrews lurking in the back of my head as I've been meditating on those. Um, do you have any, any other thoughts on the full, perfect, and sufficient aspect of the cross and the benefits of the cross? I, no, nothing that, that wouldn't get us into the weeds. So <laughs> those words are, are great. And let's not unpack them more. Yeah, um, the full, perfect, and sufficient. And then we have three really powerful words. And these are the benefits of the cross again, not the tomb. The cross wins this for us, right? Sacrifice, satisfaction, and oblation for our sins. Um, so there's this general theological term, um, and, uh, and it's called atonement. And atonement is this broad tent um, that describes God's reconciliation with wayward mankind, right? With sinful mankind. So, um, and there, there are many, this is, I hate this word, theories of the atonement. I would say aspects of the atonement, but I see it yeah. so much in theology that I get, think we're kind of stuck with it. Um, but there are different aspects of the atonement. Um, the atonement is like a gemstone that you can, I think, mm -hmm. forever be holding up to the light and it is many different things, right? And so one of the things that the atonement is, is a sacrifice, right? Something innocent must die as blood payment, um, correct? Right, and so- Yeah, so let's, and let's remember what John said in John 120, John the Baptist said, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. 
Yes. Yes. Well, and to go back to back to Hebrews in Hebrews 11, um, indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood and mm -hmm. without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. This mm -hmm. is in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, what C.S. Lewis would call the deep magic, right? It's just written into the fabric of reality. Um, and when Aslan, um, when his when his voluntary, innocent, sacrificial um, death, when he substitutes himself for its Edmund, correct? Is that who he substitutes himself for? I believe so. We'll stick with that for now. It was Edmund that ought to have died, I believe, right? Um, and uh, and, and C.S. Lewis says that uh, it's the deep magic of Narnia that an innocent death mm. um, cancels um, cancels the uh, the iniquity, the sin, right? Right, right, right? It heals, it's reconciliation, it's atonement. It, it knits back together that which has been ripped apart. And elsewhere, other, other passages talk about this, right? That, um, that greater love hath no man than this, that, that one lay down his, his life for his friends. There's some deep magic about that, right? It's written into the fabric of reality. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. And not to get too far into the weeds, uh, but it seems like it's oftentimes in history, it's been the blood of young men at war <laughs> that has knit back together um, uh, that which has been ripped apart by foolish politicians, right? <laughs> mm. So there's, yeah. so, there's, there's something about um, innocent blood having to be shed. Um, so that's the sacrifice element. Satisfaction. Well, that's, that is deep and interesting, Christopher. What's going on there? How is the cross the satisfaction for our sins? I'm throwing, oh, the, baton, I'm throwing sure. the baton to you because um, that, is, that is in some ways deeper and profounder. That, that would cause me to stammer a bit. Okay. Uh, <laughs> well, you mentioned the theories of atonement. The least popular one is something called the satisfaction theory of atonement. And that's not what, that's not what Thomas Cranmer is yes, saying here. that's correct. And the satisfaction theory of atonement uh, is is something that essentially like God is angry and like right. his wrath has to be satisfied by by killing something and and like that doesn't encompass all that well what is going on with the cross, but it but it satisfies like the 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 covenant, like God is God who keeps his promises. Right, satisfaction is in completion, completion, and so yes. so so. We think back to the very first covenant that God made with Abraham, which is something that that is for the whole earth, right? That that you, through um, your line, you will be a blessing to all people, right? And the and the the nature of a covenant is is that a greater power comes to a lesser power and says, "This is how it's going down." It's right. not like a contract where two equals come together and agree to something and then both put their their ink on the page. No, no, no. A covenant, a greater comes to a lesser and says, here are the rules of the world. Um, and you're going to sign this because I'm more powerful than you. And usually there's a, uh, the, the verb for making a covenant is to cut a covenant. It's not to make a covenant, but to cut one because there is blood involved. Indicate this covenant ceremony says, uh, it indicates whoever breaks this covenant, the, the, the punishment, the blood punishment is going to fall upon usually the lesser party. But in the case of God making covenant with Abraham, uh, God, in fact, the presence of God in, in the smoking pot, God walked through 
the severed animal parts, indicating that if this covenant is broken, God himself will bear the, um, will satisfy. Um, like, so when people sin, God is the one who satisfies the, 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 the covenant. And so it's, it's, it's completed. It's satisfied. Um, we are reconciled to God and, and reconciliation is a great theological term of like, um, we think about, uh, marriages that are ended because of irreconcilable differences. Um, we have been reconciled and brought back into, to unity and, to, that we have peace with God. That's right. And, uh, oblation, is a is a, is an old old fashioned word for for offering, it is an offering um, to God, and um, and uh, so let me uh, let me let me say this about that. Um, we just before Holy Communion, um, we uh, we have what what we call the offertory, where the elements, the bread and the wine, as well as our offerings, are are brought to the altar, and. Um, and we, in our, in our prayer book, Christopher, we say that, that our offering, our oblation is praise and thanksgiving because that is the only thing that we have to offer up um, to God. And yet, and yet Jesus, God himself, God himself for us, offers himself up, body, body and soul, as, as, um, as our atoning sacrifice. And so the benefits of the cross are victory over sin, death, and the devil. Um, and particularly, uh, victory over the devil is interesting. Christopher, if you think about the temptation, all the deals that Satan is willing to cut with Jesus, the things that he offers him, he offers him all the kingdoms of this world, right? So um, elsewhere, Satan is called the prince of this world. Uh, in, in Revelation, he it, it's it sort of appears as if he, he in, in some ways, has the run of this world, right, um, currently. Satan offers him um, all of that. Uh, Satan offers him, um, exercise your God, your Godhead. Ex like, throw yourself down and summon angels to catch you, lest you dash your foot against a stone, right? Um, be God. Be God. Be divine. Be Superman. I was watching Batman versus Superman last night with my, my kids, and the premise, kind of the animating premise behind that movie is, what would it be like if a god descended from the sky, right? And so Satan is saying to Jesus, be Superman, right? Fly around. Um, and also he says, um, turn these stones into bread, which is like satisfy your material desires. Um, again, and be God. Be miraculous. Turn this into that. Do anything except climb up to the hardwood of the cross and open a vein and mm. shed innocent blood for humanity. So Satan knows <laughs> what represents, not represents again. Oh gosh, what a weasel word. What is the victory over him? And it is, and it is the cross. It is, it is the cross. And that, that is the victory over him. Um, so in other words, we have some, some packed theological words that the cross accomplishes for us, Christopher. It is our, just because it is our reconciliation with God, it is the, the means that reconciles us with God. It is the atoning sacrifice. Um, it is our justification, right? So the charges against us are dropped and it is our redemption. It is the blood payment for us. We are bought out of slavery to sin and death. Um, and so those are kind of the very highly technical theological terms, but those have real practical devotional benefits for our hearts and for our eternal souls. And those benefits are won by the cross, not the tomb. 
Um, so before we pivot to the resurrection and the empty tomb, you have anything to add about the benefits of the cross for the believer? All right. No. So for the benefits of the, the resurrection, so that's Good Friday. That is why Good Friday, Christopher, I, I, I've said this before, is Good Friday, not Solemn Friday, not Sad Friday, not Regrettable Friday, but Good Friday. It is what he came to do. He came to die. And so we, with quiet thanksgiving on this day, we praise our God and our eyes are fixed against the cross. Um, as as what, what is the, the phrase in, when I survey the wondrous cross? With, uh, with tears and love, uh, with sorrow and love flow mingling down. Yes, mm. today we look at the cross with sorrow and love flow mingling down. Um, the benefits of the resurrection, Christopher, I can't think of a better uh, passage than 1 Corinthians 15 um, that talk about the benefits of the resurrection for us as believers. So I'll read just a couple of verses, Christopher, from 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as in by a man, for as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Um, and that, Christopher, I believe very straightforwardly explains to us what the benefits of Christ's resurrection. His resurrection is the first fruits of our resurrection. <laughs> For, right, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. Um, as an Adam will die, right, we will die, you and I will die, because Adam died. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. It is his resurrection that will be the cause of our resurrection. So the fruits of the cross, of not the cross, the fruits of the empty tomb, the fruits of Easter Sunday, or our resurrection on the last day. And some of the most affecting Easter art, Christopher, that I, that, that I know are, are Orthodox icons that show the risen Christ, one with each hand, ripping Adam and Eve mm. out mm. of the grave <laughs> because he is the cause of, uh, of the resurrection on the last day of all the faithful. Um, so I have some other thoughts about that, but I've, but I've been monologuing and you have a, you have a very profound look in your face as if you're oozing observations on the resurrection. Well, let's not oversell it, <laughs> but, uh, so you talked about theories of atonement and again, these are better described as aspects of the atonement and right. And to, to overemphasize one, um, we can lose sight of others. And so um, there's a sense in, in the global church and the historic church that um, as the Reformation rediscovered the, the beauty and importance of the cross, of the cro it is the cross which uh, reconciles us to God and everything that we just described um, let us also appreciate Christ's victory over, over death. And, and, yes. uh, and <clears throat> it's interesting as we talk about the way of the cross and, and the uh, theology of the cross and the theology of glory, 
um, that some people just have no room for the cross, especially in America. Like mm -hmm. the cross looks like defeat <clears throat> right. and they want to emphasize the victory. Um, and in that sense, like I know some, I've been influenced by some, by some very wise and wonderful Christians who talk a tons about the cross, almost to the detriment of the resurrection. And so let's not lose sight of the resurrection and let's, and, and let's also not lose sight of, um, the theory of atonement, which is called Christus Victor Yes, or the victor Christ, the victor. And, uh, we have this, uh, we've talked about, how our theology is our worship, this lex orandi, lex credendi. And in our renewed ancient text, we have uh, this summarized pretty well. We have the whole gospel story summarized pretty well. In your infinite love, you made us for yourself. And when we had sinned against you and become subject to evil and death, you and your mercy sent your only son, Jesus Christ, into the world for our salvation. So there we have the incarnation by the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary. He became flesh and dwelt among us. In obedience to your will, he stretched out his arms upon the cross and offered himself once for all, that by his suffering and death we might be saved. There's the cross. What does it say about the resurrection? It says, by his resurrection, he broke the bonds of death, trampling hell and Satan under his feet. I mean, that's Christ's victory right there. Mm -hmm. and, it's and it's beautiful that, that like his victory over, over death is our victory. And... For that reason, uh, so it's interesting in in the East today, the resurrection is much more emphasized over Good Friday, where right. where um, we emphasize Good Friday and blood and things like that. And, and let's have a balance. Let's not reject one. Let's let's hold that, like you said, gem and look at all the facets of the gem. Is, is that what you said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The gem and 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 appreciate all that he did. Let's not talk too much about the cross. We're not talking about his his resurrection uh, because um, it, it is the resurrection which is the first fruits. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I I I, com I completely agree with that. Um, I I think that we have, um, as, as you become, if if you become interested in Christian theology, uh, there's some unwritten rule somewhere that says you have to pick <laughs> a, a theory of the atonement and like angrily defend it and hate all the others. And um, I actually made a plea recently um, in a Sunday school class, um, uh, and 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 I I mean I'm 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 an inheritor of the Western Catholic tradition. And so um, to me, the substitutionary atonement is the most powerful. And I just have the, the, the glasses I wear when I read scripture, I see it everywhere. I can't unsee it. Um, but there is moral exemplar, right? Christ on the cross does show us what love truly is, right? Um, there is ransom, right? He is the payment, right? And there is substitution. He is the innocent lamb. Uh, and then you, like you said, there is Christus Victor. And that's what we're talking about. You really see that in Easter is the victory over death, right? The victory over death. So um, you and I wanted to talk a little bit about, we, we've, uh, we've got to wrap it up. We want to talk a little bit about how we um, see in popular culture and in popular piety, when you mix up, when you smash Good Friday and Easter, or you forget one, um, that it can, it can kind of have a, a slightly warping effect in popular piety. And so I have kind of two hobby horses that I beat, and I'll try to address them briefly so that so you can respond and, and, and maybe share some observations you, on your own. You, you beat your hobby horses? It's very cruel of me and, and counterintuitive, I agree. I'm just, I'm just <laughs> joking about you mixing your metaphors. Okay, so number one is the torn curtain. Hmm. Um, the torn curtain as, as evidence um, that there is no longer any, we need no more, we no longer need a mediator. Um, so when we enter into worship, 
we just, we walk straight into the face of God, the father unmediated. Hmm. Um, and, and, and I think that that bypasses the cross to good Friday hmm. and doesn't rec- recognize, um, that there is, there is a substitutionary sacrifice and we need that, um, on our foreheads in our baptism. We need that in our mouths and in our bodies, in his body and his blood. And we need the mediating son always, and in our hearts as we are fed by his word. We need that always with us um, because that is, that is our access to the father. The, the curtain wasn't torn just because it was torn. It was torn because our atoning sacrifice was dying, tearing it, right? And we need that atoning sacrifice applied to us. And we read very clearly in scripture and the church teaches us um, how that is applied to us at the waters of baptism and in his body and his blood. So um, that, that's number one. Um, I think a lot of American Christians want to go straight to the tomb, the empty tomb. And the other is this, Christopher, um, and I don't know if you've heard this before, but like, why have a crucifix? Um, mm. Because um, the cross is empty. And this is just, I, I think to me, a very understandable um, category error, but a category error nonetheless, which is <laughs> you need a man on the cross <laughs> to save you. <laughs> it's not the empty cross that saves you. If you want something empty, you want an empty tomb, right? So the empty tomb is the first fruits of your resurrection. The power, that is the power that will rip you and I from the grave when the trumpet sounds on the last day. Um, But if you're talking about that which redeems you and justifies you and purchases you out of slavery to sin, um, it's a man on the cross, not an empty cross. Um, Once the man has been dragged down from the cross, that cross is actually not of much benefit to you. Then you're looking to the tomb, but go ahead. Yeah, I guess uh, the torn curtain in the temple is a beautiful representation of, uh, of. I guess I, I talk about every, you know, all not all things changing, but so much changing. You know, we we celebrate. Um, on the Lord's day, on, on the day that he was raised. And, and like th- this changed so much and that, that we, that no longer is, is our, our priests in, in the temple in one place mediating, but in fact, um, the body of Christ is the people, you know, it is, is the, the gathered, um, church and, uh, but this sense of, of not wanting or of not thinking there's a mediator between us and God is, is, is an error to make, um, we see in Revelation this beautiful vision of, of God declaring the, the place of God is with man, mm-hmm. right? Like, like God descends essentially to earth and says, like, I'm coming to be with you now. But that's not yet. Um, we still pray to the Father through the Son. In Jesus' name, through the Son, yep. um, that He is our advocate with the Father. Um, our that he only is our mediator, mediator our only mediator and advocate. Um, and that's, and that's not a bad thing. <laughs> like that, 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 that's, that's okay. Cause he's a good mediator <laughs> because he, he is, um, he is still fully man. Like he, he represents us to, to the father. He's fully God and fully man. And, and the way that he advocates for us, for us, um, I'm trying to remember the verse that he is always mediating on our behalf or something, something like that. Um, he's there with the father. Um, and until yeah. the, that last day when the father descends to finally return to, to return to that state of the garden where, where God was walking with Adam and Eve. Um, yeah. that, that's what, that's what we hope for uh, to come, but not, but not today. 
So I have one final observation on uh, the resurrection. Um, I, I remember in college, um, a, a science professor saying that, um, just, just talking about how, um, how the diffusion, how diffusion works, right? So um, Aristotle um, took in a breath, you know, 2,400 years ago, and he expelled it. And given a long enough period of time, um, those however many million molecules in that breath that he expelled, um, you and I have breathed um, O2 uh, molecules that Aristotle breathed, right? There's been enough time that it's diffused, right? So, so we, I, I have somewhere in my blood a bit of Aristotle, though a bit of O2 that was once Aristotle, right? Um, this this idea that Christ is first fruits of the resurrection, um, the believer who who weakly is feeding upon him. And this, there's this dual aspect of Holy Communion, right? We are the body of Christ in that we as the church, we are one, we are one body, right? We are, so we commune with each other, right? We are knit together in the mystical body of his faithful people, right? So there's that mystical, invisible sense in which we are knit together. And yet there's the more gritty and concrete sense in which we become increasingly united with him over the course of a faithful life. Um, and if he is, his body is risen, ascended, and glorified next to the God, the Father, um, like the greater magnet pulling the lesser magnet to it, how can we not be ripped <laughs> from the grave? Um, I recently was, um, was reading someone who, is, who pointed out that the, the first generation of Tractarians in the Oxford movement, um, John Keeble, John Henry Newman, um, Pusey, they advocated a lengthy period of time in silence and prayer after receiving Holy Communion. And at that time in the Church of England, it was common only to receive the sacrament a couple times a year. And um, so, so it makes sense. This, this, was, this was a rare, um, delicious uh, uh, treat. And, um, and so they advocated um, just sitting with it and praying to God in thanksgiving and praise afterwards. And um, I, was, I was moved by that. And um, last night, at the end of church, um, we strip. Uh, the, the altar was stripped, um, the lights were turned off, and slowly everything in the sanctuary in the front of the church was removed. Um, the altar was washed, and it's bare. It's stripped bare, um, very starkly, powerfully, visually representing Christ's betrayal by the disciples and and him being left alone um, in the garden, betrayed into the hands of sinners. And um, the last thing that we had sung. Um, before, uh, before the stripping of the altar was something, Christopher, we haven't sung for 15 years in our church. And it was that great hippie Vatican II 70s anthem, I Am the Bread of Life. Mm. And I've played it before as bumper music here uh, on this podcast. But it's straight out of John 6. And I know how much mm -hmm. you love John 6. That, that is a, kind of a drum you've beat on, on this podcast before. Um, and I will raise you up. And I will raise you up and I will raise you up on the last day. Um, and that's the chorus of that song. And, um, and I just sat in darkness, staring at an empty altar um, with that in my mind. And um, I was filled with a great, a great sense um, of thanksgiving for um, the benefits of the empty tomb, that um, his resurrection is a promise of our resurrection. And I guess that's what I want to say about um, the benefits mm. of the tomb. Mm. Shall we pray? Let's pray. The Lord be with you. And with your spirit.
Let us pray. O God, who for our redemption gave your only begotten Son to die upon the cross, and by his glorious resurrection delivered us from the devil and the power of death, grant us grace to die daily to sin, that we may live in him with, in the joy of his resurrection, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, now and forever. Amen. Amen. Lighten our darkness, we beseech you, O Lord, and by your great mercy, defend us from all perils and dangers of this night. For the love of your only Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all evermore. Amen. Amen. Christopher, Next. go get that Fauci-ouchie. <laughs> Next week, Kirk. Next week. <laughs>